the Art and Science of Wealth podcast, having an impact, leaving a legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Art and Science of Wealth. Today, we have a very special guest whose name is Seth Morton, and he is a multifunctional kind of a guy. He is with the Healthcare Velocity Center, the Family Association, the Family Office Association of Austin. Is it Houston? Is that right? Uh, Family Office Association, yeah, broadly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Um, and the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. Welcome, Seth. We're glad you're here. Thank you, Steffi. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Love the show. I think you guys are, it's a great, it's a great project, and I'm really happy to be here. Well, I have to say that it was because of Seth that Steffi and I got introduced, or we connected. It is true. Um, when Seth started, I followed the, the Family Office Association, originally the Texas, family, Houston Family Office, Texas, and now the Family Office, because mm -hmm. Seth, you can correct me anywhere in here, their membership is across the country now. Mm -hmm. That's right. So they've rebranded it, the Family Office Association, TFOA. Right. And I've known the founder there, Mark Sharp, for some time and got in a newsletter. And then the fall of 2020, I believe, um, there was a different tone and a different substance to some of the writings that were showing up in the newsletter. And I went, holy cow, this is really interesting stuff. And I looked, there was a new name in the byline, Seth Morton. And I reached, saw him on LinkedIn, reached out to him and said, hey, I love your writings, um, your contribution to the new content. Um, would love to... Um, compare notes. And one thing led to another. And uh, again, in the spirit of full disclosure, Seth and I are personal friends as a result of that connection. Um, and we have professional connections that may or may not be relevant for this conversation. Um, but it was from some of my postings of comments and, and thoughts in the Family Office Association, because of my relationship with Seth, yeah. on their LinkedIn page, that Steffi commented on one of my posts, because you too are a member there, are you not? So or you, you watch their uh, their posts on their LinkedIn feed. I certainly do. I follow Mark very closely. Yeah. So this is uh, this is the good side of social media, right there, folks. Uh, it works sometimes <laughs> to bring these like-minded folks together. And and what I I again, Seth and I really bonded over um, our goals, which is the goal of this podcast, is to really elevate the conversation around a subject matter that's become, in many ways, somewhat diluted. What is a family office? Um, amongst other things, best practices and principled investing broadly defined. Um, and it was, uh, so the goal of our podcast is just to aggregate through Steffi and I's Rolodexes and shared contacts and some not shared, um, the, to elevate the narrative. We're not here to promote ourselves, promote our individual economic interest that keeps us busy when we're not doing podcasts and other LinkedIn posts and the like. Um, it really is to just try and put in one spot the um, the collective wisdom and insights from what Steffi and I have accumulated over our careers. And then as we're finding folks like Seth that is sort of in maybe the middle, maybe the what the first third of your career, that's to be determined. But <laughs> it's remarkable to find um, such wisdom and experience in um, in someone so young, as I, I can say, it's sitting here at 60. So <laughs> with that. Um, we generally keep these fairly loose. We did sort of prompt Seth with a bit of an agenda and really just to prompt the conversation. 
but our goal is to have this as free form and Joe Rogan-esque uh, in a spirit of not recreating a wheel that's working pretty well um, as we can. And that's really the goal of this whole thing. And so thanks for those of you, this is your first time and, and we do have, a, we are on Spotify, Apple and, uh, and YouTube. So for those of you that are listening, um, please do. And you can look back on some of the uh, prior conversations and we'll continue to have these weekly and, and maybe a couple times a week. Yep. So to sum up what Joe just said, Joe and I know a lot of exceptionally cool people. <laughs> we've learned exceptionally cool things from them and we've decided that we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. We wanted to share it with everyone. Well, Seth's not cool. He's just really smart. What he didn't also <laughs> say in his intro, is cool. do, he has a, well, I'll let you know. I think that was part of our next agenda is for you to give a little bit longer winded introduction. And, and so you can give, provide context to some of your insights that you'll be, be offering later on. Yeah, happy to um, share a little bit about myself. Uh, again, really happy to be here. My journey, uh, you know, this is the Art and Science of Wealth podcast. And so my journey into this world is um, a bit different. But I guess, you know, the more you learn, you learn everybody has a very different mm -hmm. journey. And there's always kind of interesting pieces about it. So uh, I'll, I'll share mine and I'll let the listeners decide how different it really is in the end. But um, I pursued a, an intense study in the humanities. Uh, I was always a book worm, book person, uh, lover of literature and philosophy. Um, and when I was an undergrad, I, I grew up uh, in Michigan, um, moved around a bit, uh, Growing up, parents were in different industries. My my mother's a uh, kind of retired from the Air Force now, and and uh, and so we uh, we didn't move around necessarily because of her deployments, but she was deployed abroad a lot, and and so I kind of grew up in a world that or grew up in a household that was asking questions about the world and, and open, and and so I, you know, I, I distinctly have lots of memories of my parents kind of trying to challenge me to think about the bigger world and, and always encouraging me to think for myself. Um, and uh, I don't think they ever said no to any book that I wanted to read. And, and uh, so I, I read a lot, um, went to Michigan State for my undergrad, went to high school in, in Michigan and in Michigan State uh, for my undergrad. And then I, uh, during my studies, I matriculated into a university in Germany Freiburg, Germany. I ended up spending about three years in Germany um, uh, studying oh, that was at a first. Full, wasn't that a Fulbright scholarship? Yes, eventually it was a Fulbright. So at first I matriculated and it was a kind of a co-study program. So I was uh, earning credits at a German university and Michigan State didn't really know what to do with all the credits I had accumulated at this oh. German university. So I, I have a uh, an additional degree in German that I kind of picked up along the way, although it was never my intention to to get a become a German major or anything like that. And um, and yes, I I, uh, uh, I I it felt like just when I had mastered German and and was fluent and was really uh, feeling like I was able to pursue my own kind of intellectual pursuits. It was at that time that it was kind of, I was sort of at the end of my studies. I wanted to continue and um, I discovered this great program, the Fulbright program, applied to it, 
earned a Fulbright fellowship, was able to stay for another 18 months or so, uh, pursuing kind of independent study, mostly in uh, uh, the Southwest, but also spent a lot of time in Berlin. And again, you know, I was uh, um, really interested in 20th century history, uh, really interested in the time between the two world wars, kind of Weimar era, Germany, both economics. I found it really fascinating. I was really fascinated in the art and the culture and also the way that language was changing and communications and media and technology. And so all of this, I, I ended up applying for various PhD programs. And that's what brought me to Rice University, brought me to Texas and Houston. And so I was uh, studying systems theory as uh, in a part of an English PhD program at Rice University. And uh, at that time, kind of that was started in 2010, Rice uh, was, and, and I think still is to this day, but really one of the foremost centers of intellectual inquiry into systems theory, communications, and media. Uh, There's a number of professors, not just in English, but in uh, philosophy, linguistics, uh, religious studies, um, uh, all sorts of different fields, and, and not to mention uh, everything that's happening on the on the engineering side. It's, it's kind of Rice is famous for their engineering uh, school uh, and programs there. And so it's a really great melting pot of all of these different um, intellectual traditions kind of interested in this one key word, systems. What is a system? How do systems come about? How are they maintained? How do they work? Are there rules? And, and once you, when you begin to study systems theory, you realize that it's always been a very interdisciplinary field. Um, the early, some of the early conferences and the mid forties hosted by, um, physicists and biologists, as well as communications um, and literature people were always about trying to figure out those cross connections across different disciplines. So I was really interested in cybernetics, what's known as second order systems theory. And, um, it was a, it was an incredible time of, of learning and, and thinking. And as I got to the end of that study, I was trying to, you know, my program and working on my dissertation, I was trying to think about what I wanted to do. Um, I, I, I had the distinct feeling that I, I wanted to apply, you know, when you study systems for so long, you want to work in some systems. You want to kind of think about what you can do. And uh, I was very fortunate. I, I started a, I, a conversation with a chief investment officer for a new fam a relatively new family office based in Houston. And uh, I was talking to him about my studies about systems, about how they work, how they don't work, about communication, about different kinds of interference and feedback loops. And he was talking about the challenges of building an investment, a private direct investment program, taking a group of really seasoned kind of former Wall Street and kind of international finance types that are really good at analyzing investments and kind of thinking through um, you know, what makes a good deal and how to execute. And then the challenges of taking that skill set and translating it to a family and, and helping a family decide what is the purpose and meaning of their wealth, how to how to develop a platform that can evolve through across generations, 
Um, and, you know, immediately my kind of systems theory mind just started kind of crackling with potential and ideas and thinking about, you know, uh, an issue like intergenerational uh, transfer is a really interesting kind of uh, concept from a systems perspective because you have, obviously, it's one family. We can think about a family system. But across generations, there's a lot of differences too. And so you can also see it as kind of two nested systems and how are these all things working? So I was immediately fascinated with it and we began working together. Uh, I was kind of put in the middle of all of these folks trying to figure out um, a classic systems theory problem, which is interface. How does one part of a system interface with another part and how can you facilitate interfacing toward productive ends? Um, so that's the kind of like nerdy systems view of how I got into the world of wealth and private equity and investments and, and all of these things that, that we love to talk about. Uh, I'll say, you know, some of the figures that influenced my own thinking, um, you know, beyond all the philosophy and literature that I was reading as I moved into it, you know, uh, I think writers like James E. Hughes um, and his work on family wealth and, and thinking about the trust structure and how stakeholders, how, how to kind of think through you know, uh, he, he's coming at it from a legal background, but he had the observation that you can create, uh, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with his work, um, if you, you can create these meticulous legal structures, but if you don't understand the human component, the legal structure doesn't really do anything for it. And I'll say in my own experience, kind of from that first experience working for that family to other families, you definitely see certain patterns emerging. And the the missing component always seemed to be that kind of human element or the, the humanist quality. Um, these existential questions about wealth and purpose and meaning, how those get organized um, and marshaled toward productive ends is the... I think the biggest challenge in the world of family office mm -hmm. and something that Joe and I connected on early uh, in our conversations is uh, the parallels that that shares with um, entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. early stage corporate development and the, the challenges uh, that are present there. And there's interesting overlap there too, because of course, one of the ways that families can build legacies is through uh, engaging in the future, and there is perhaps no better representation of what the future looks like than something like the early stage asset class, which is very much built around a, of building particular visions of the future. So that's a little long-winded tour, uh, you know, short detour through southwestern Germany and the Black Forest, all the way to Houston, the petro capital of the United States, at least, and uh, everything in between. That's well, one of the more unique stories I've ever oh, heard of how oh, well. we all get into family office accidentally. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm listening like, systems? How is this going to work? <laughs> well, well I, Steffi, I will take exception to your comment about accidentally. Because um, <laughs> that's not, there is intentionality into his work, and there was very much intentionality into my entry into the world of family offices. But yeah, the the... It is the most interesting journey, and we bonded instantly because his intellectual rigor and his intellectual thirst uh, was so fascinating to me, and I, I didn't have the same opportunities he did, and so listening to him talk is like porn to me. I mean, it's intellectual porn. <laughs> it's so 
both interesting and substantive and dynamic and yet uh, so succinct from, again, I, I hate to keep playing this card, Seth, but it, it's something that, because in, in systems thinking, and I'm going to paraphrase and get way over my skis now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to bring you back. So you, please, you, please. you can swing, swing as, as wild as you want. I'll, I'll try to catch him where you pitch him. <laughs> is the element of time is a really important component. You know, mm. back to the legal strategy, you could put a tactical optimized legal strategy around something, but if you call it the human element, I call it how humans behave over time and how their goals change and their moods change and the risk tolerance changes. It's very, very mercurial. And so you have to have a tactical strategy that can accommodate change over time and still not lose its original intentionality. Yeah. So in, uh, and I'll, I'll just kind of, at least for now, I'll just, I'll lean into the systems theory nerd side of things. Um, as I'm often want to do, but yeah, I think, you know, one of the first things you have to grapple with uh, in systems is that systems by their name are really defined through change. Uh, uh, a, sta uh, a stable system, stable and static are very different things, right? Uh, a static system is usually dead. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, a little bit like the shark has to keep moving, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, a German systems thinker that's been influential to my work is named Nicholas Luhmann, and, and his writing is very dense, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody that wants to, you know, remain uncross-eyed, you know. It's not paid to study. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, Luhmann, when he talks about uh, operations and systems, every time a system does something, it changes the entire system. And so there's a kind of a question if a, once the system changes – is the the state that it was before does it exist anymore and you know you there's an argument you know we can think about ourselves are are you the same person you are today that you were a year ago you know many people would say no I, i've learned these things i've uh, a mentor of mine like to say the difference between who you are today and who you are next year are the books you read the people you talk to and the places you go mm -hmm. um we're always changing and we have a kind of continuity with ourselves we're able to say oh yes i remember who i was then but i'm different now and so systems always exist in this kind of flux space between a place of stasis of of self-identity and internal coherency but a constant uh transformation and, and constant new inputs yeah yeah constantly they're receiving new inputs and and the idea of feedback loops or a keyword in, in uh, I'll throw a lot of multi-syllabic words for your listeners, but homeostasis, right? The ability for a, a system to maintain equilibrium is, you know, think about when you're walking or when you're standing, you know, your muscles, your whole body, all these little things are adjusting to make sure that you're able to stay upright at any given time. You're unconscious. Your, your conscious mind isn't aware of all the different kinds of information that your central nervous system is processing. Um, family offices, businesses, corporations, social structures all work the same way, right? Or there's a there's a kind of parallel at least in that. And so, yes, to your to your point, you know, you create that legal structure, trust, you you know, your trustees, your beneficiaries, that organization, that's great. That might create that foundation, but the second it does anything, it's going to start to change. And so, you know, this is why the field of resiliency 
mm. resilient studies. There's that's kind of one of the key buzzwords that you hear all over the place. How do we build resilient? You know, what does it mean to be resilient? And there's all sorts of things we could talk about redundancy. Wait, wait, we could wait, talk about hey, all these different things. Hang on, you missed anti-fragile. Sure, <laughs> anti-fragile, right? Yeah, Nassim Talib's kind of contribution to the study, to the field. Um, you know, all of those concepts are trying to acknowledge or at least get their arms around this fundamental truth, which is that change is always happening. And uh, it's actually to our benefit that we blind ourselves to it, right? If we were if we were acutely aware, like if you were aware of all of the inputs that your brain had to process your central nervous system, you wouldn't have any room to think because you'd constantly be thinking, oh, I'm moving two degrees over here. I got to readjust two degrees over, you know. So it's actually the blindness, and this is a kind of in another interesting idea about systems, the blindness that a system has to itself is actually one of its advantages you know you might even say an evolutionary advantage or or something like that it it helps it maintain that level right if we had to if we were cognitively aware of all of this stuff same thing in a business or a family office you know family a family wants this kind of structure they want that kind of stability they don't necessarily need to know every single moving part and how it's happening at every single moment because that's just information overload and you know that leads to analysis paralysis it, it leads to all these other things but managing those things understanding all those forces and how they work together you know that to me to go to the name of your show that is the art and science of wealth oh that sounds like every family office needs a seth morton oh well <laughs> Uh, you know, um, find me on LinkedIn, <laughs> folks. I don't know. <laughs> no, we will get to what's next for Seth at the bottom of the uh, <laughs> yes. conversation because that is, I think, one of the most profound questions with somebody of this background, education, cognitive ability to synthesize and process so many moving parts, complex thinker. Um, what he does next and how, where does he, what's the highest and best use of this is, I think, a, a really important question. And so it's, it's a privilege to have him as a friend. Oh. Well, you guys, please, you're, you're making me blush, guys. So let's let's dive into the, let's get, let's roll up our sleeves and get into some <laughs> some stuff here. Well, okay, you, are, so. yeah, you are eloquent <laughs> in your transitioning because I think that did that, that, <laughs> that, that last comment was a perfect transition. <laughs> Definitely, why don't you start with Yeah, the, I've the got, so I've got a question. Um, how does a family office look without awareness of systems? And how does a family office look with an awareness of systems? That is a huge Great question. Great question. Pick a piece and go. Mm. Great question. Yeah, that's a good... Um, good question. A good question. I'll have to think about it. You know, I would say that most, you know, I, I like to approach things by thinking about their histories, right? Um and you know most of the history of family the the modern history of family office you know we tend to look at families like the rockefellers and the morgans as some of the first families that took a conscious you know there's a there's a deeper history there where you can look at some of the kind of landed wealth of europe and some of you know kind of renaissance era the rise of kind of mercantile houses and and how they establish themselves. You could look at um, Italy and, and there's been some really interesting work in 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 those those deeper fields. But to kind of take a, a shorter view of the history, um, those large families were some of the first that decided to 
take a kind of business management approach to the administration of their family. Um, and so I think on some level, there's always been an awareness of uh, whether they had the language of systems theory, there's always a kind of an awareness of, or at least an intentionality or or a purpose, um, um, a telos, if you will, to, to use the Greek uh, the Greek word, the aim or or the the goal, and that's obviously one of the primary roles of a family office is to help define, or help a family define its telos or a telos, or we will say, a family mission statement to kind of put it in a more contemporary. Uh, non-Greek way. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, I, I guess my way, as I, I'm trying to think about the difference, Steffi, that, that you mm. offered in terms of yeah. with or without, I, I think on the without side, I just think about um, um, situations where uh, uh, either they're unable to embrace change the change across generations and manage that change for for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes that's intentional. Uh, uh, you know, as many families, uh, you know, you have a generation that builds a lot of wealth, and it's actually part of the design to unwind all the wealth by a specific point in time. Um, and so they they sort of manage that in a, they sort of consciously unmanage it, you might say, or strategically unmanage it. Um, I think the 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 situations that are sad or, or are unfortunate are when, and this is true not just of a family office but of any kind of situation when a, a principals or founders or a leadership team you know wants X, um, but is kind of structurally impaired or inhibited from achieving acts for various reasons or maybe they don't quite understand the the path and then they they sort of fall short of that or this sort of thing and so you know obviously uh, they're famous you know there's lots of stories of of family fortunes that kind of fade away over a period of uh, a few generations and and that was never the intention you know when it's the intention it makes sense it's like oh there's actually planning here and design when that wasn't the when people are sort of acting without really having a strategic future oriented thought, then it's kind of unfortunate because then usually there are other kind of factors or, or, or things that are leading that just show, I mean, from a, in a systems phrase, we would say there's a kind of a, um, you call those positive feedback loops. Uh, they're called positive, not because they're good, but because every time a loop circles, more noise is injected into the system, which causes the, the balancing act to kind of it's the the weeble wobble every every cycle it wobbles a little more than it did before so rather than a swing slowly reaching back to its middle point every cycle it's actually going a little bit further and more erratic and that sort of thing and that's a that's a positive feedback loop which usually you know ends in a state of kind of chaos or or systemic disarray that sort of thing um so yeah i mean i you know it's uh I, I think it comes down to uh having a kind of um self-awareness, uh reflexivity, the ability to um uh on the on the system side, we would talk about um observation, self-observation. So the ability to kind of understand what you're doing as part of a system, that kind of self-awareness. 
rather than just acting without reflection, acting with reflection. So kind of an informed choices or an understanding of the consequences of those choices and kind of, again, taking the results of whatever those choices are and then feeding them back in, in a kind of meaningful, intentional way versus just a, you know, a, a simple system just takes inputs and has outputs and there's no recursive structure. Recursivity is a, a really, you know, if you go to those systems theory conferences, you know, they're, uh, as they gather around the water cooler, that's recursivity is a really hot topic, you know, and how recursivity happens and, and, and what causes it is, is, uh, is a big, uh, uh, you know, is a big kind of part of the field and everything. And, and it's, it's important because it's one of the primary ways that a system is able to establish autopoiesis or, or maintain itself. And so the challenge, you know, it's a lot easier when you're talking about something like a biological system, like a tree growing in a field, you know, this sort of thing, or, or when you're talking about even some ecological system, you know, these kinds of things, everything becomes more complicated when you have humans, <laughs> right? Because we have things like desire, we have egos, we have, we have all these things uh, that impinge on our ability to make rational decisions. Uh, and, uh, and that makes, that makes everything tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, to me, that makes things more interesting and, and more fun, but it definitely has, it has its challenges. Um, on the, on the literary side, you know, I, I like, uh, I often think about stories like King Lear, Shakespeare's King Lear as a kind of a story of, a of, uh, uh, what happens when a family office system is, uh, uh, not reflected upon, right? And you sort of see it as it plays out in increasing, you know, increasing amounts of chaos and and uncertainty get injected into that system because there is no Lear in the first scene of the play kind of takes the guardrails off all the structures and just kind of lets it do what it's going to do and and sort of basically fires his entire family office team, you would say, if we were kind of analyzing King Lear as a study in family office. Um, and so, you know, what's always been interesting to me is, and I point to the literary tradition, because uh, a lot of these things, you know, we have a long legacy of um, people have engaged with these themes for a long time. Um, and, and people have, you know, solutions evolve and change, but an understanding of the problems and what drive those problems is pretty consistent over time. And I think the, the, to go, you know, back to the, the, I just, I can't help, but tag the, the title of the show. I think, I think the art and science of that is the reconciliation between um, understanding these fundamental problems, which are very consistent, but then being able to reconcile that with all of the new technologies, kind of geopolitical, political dynamics, economic dynamics that give it kind of a new texture. The, the, the structure is always or often the same, but the texture can be very different, can feel different, and it can create feelings of uncertainty or, or um, just, um, you know, a, a general sense of not knowing or not understanding. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the Vanderbilts. Mm, mm -hmm. Great example. And the Stroh's beer family. Yes. Yeah. That book was a very good oh, story. Beer? I mean, a very yeah. sad story, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't beer. think of the title of the book now. I'm, I'm, I'm short of it. 
Yeah, Beer Money by Frank Oh yeah, Beer Money. Ford. That's right. Highly worth reading. Excellent yes. story. Yeah. Yeah. That. And then on the other side, I'm thinking about reading about musicians like Sting and mm. some other, you know, especially British, who are deliberately not leaving their children money. They are going to sunset. They have, but we don't want to do this. They see the wealth as a burden, which I find interesting because those that are doing that came from you know, middle class or even poor backgrounds. So yeah. they, it's that's that's how it's reflected to them. Maybe they don't see the system or they see the system as a burden on their children. So they have sunset plans. You know, they're going to leave their children. Their children are not going to starve. Right. But they're going to leave their children something, obviously. But yeah. there's so that there's such a wide range of of you know, this the, how do you how do you define a system or lack of system or I know it as we were discussing or talking about before the the episode one of the the things that came up was how we define wealth mm, right. um and you know again my my this is the english lit english phd coming i i like mm. to think of the roots of the word where mm. the word wealth comes from uh, the old english word wheel uh, which is also connected to the word health. Wealth and health are are etymologically linked. And, uh, you know, it, it speaks to what is good for a community, an individual, like that idea of what produces or brings about goodness. Um, uh, and more modern iterations, it, it also evokes kind of a sense of abundance. But I think what's important with wealth is that it is not co-determinant with riches, right? I think, or or material, you know? And so I think, you know, in the case of someone like Sting, you know, think of the journey that a person like that has had, all the world lessons that a person like that has learned, you know, he's, what he's passing on to his children and his grandchildren is true wealth in the sense that it is truly the wisdom earned through one of the most remarkable lives that any individual could be fortunate enough to have. Um, you know, so much of what we do on the family office side is about the, the tactical management of riches or material wealth, these kinds of things are decisions around that. But in close conjunction with that other harder to get at idea of wheel or goodness, abundance, quality, you know, these kinds of things. And this is why it's so important, I think, for for families and family offices to develop things like their own mission statement or to have to think about, you know, uh, uh, something that that uh, I've written about a little bit and something um, that we've talked about at the Family Office Association is um, something like an ethical will. You know, what do you want to pass on that is non-material? Mm. Uh, you know, what are the if you take 15 minutes, besides any any material object that you would pass on to the next generation, what is it that you would want to leave behind? What is the what are the most meaningful things? And you know, uh, have, I've been fortunate and blessed to have worked with families that have gone through that kind of exercise and and have kind of put that to paper. And I'll, I'll tell you, every time you know, it sort of takes your breath away every time you go through an experience like that because you always learn something. Um, about the family, about the individual, about uh, what they want for the future. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's very important to kind of put that in the center of so much of, of this kind of work. 
I'm going to, you've covered so many of the things we did want to touch on, Seth, so we're not going to be slavish to the, the formal agenda, but I am going to take an, and as you could, our listeners can tell, Seth is very intellectually rigorous and intellectually thorough. And so one of the things you put down when we asked you, what is your personal definition of wealth? And you just touched on it, but I think that the phrase you, you came up with or your part of your answer, I think is really worth exploring here. And that is, as as we asked you the question, you wrote, define through subtraction, eliminate everything that wealth isn't, and you're le left with what wealth is. Yeah, I have to give it up to, of course, I'm a big about attribution, you know, us as PhDs, we like to give credit and we like to cite our sources. So that's, that's of course, uh, a little adaptation of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the oh. Sherlock Holmes, you okay. know, eliminate uh uh eliminate everything everything impossible and all that you're left with is you know what is possible i don't i don't know the exact quote but uh you know i think philosophically there's a tradition there also um hegel well, and this idea well, of hey, so understanding I, things through their opposites i'm, oh, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna throw the delay of, a delay of uh, a game um and start having you truncate your answers Buddy. We're, okay. We're, we're, we're well, yeah, I, I, I'm happy. Yeah, we can be more. I'm, I'm happy to be more free flowing, or, or yeah. I, I don't mean to pontificate. I'll, I'll try to not pontificate, but um, so, okay. I'll just say, so tell me uh, what wealth isn't. Well, I, I don't think it's riches. I don't think it like material. I, I don't think it's capital, uh, kind of narrowly defined. I don't think it's power. I, I think all these mm. things can be byproducts or can be certainly are, can be kind of picked up as part of that journey. Um, to me, I, I think of wealth as um, it, 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 to me, the, the core qualities is this idea of abundance, having a lot of something and what that abundance is, is an abundance of, of goodness. I, I think also the trait, the key trait, you know, what is a wealthy person or how do you, you know, what's the difference between a wealthy person and a rich person? Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the key differences is generosity. That's a kind Ooh. of a generous spirit, Ooh. you know, and that's a that topic. ties. Yeah, that's yeah. a topic we're going to cover, the difference between wealth and riches. That is, that's brilliant. Sorry. Yeah, and again, I mean, the difference there is, is when you have abundance, that I, it's, you're, you're in a kind of a, a mindset of generosity. And, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, I also think that many people through the experience of generosity, they see that by being generous, they receive more in return than they give or the act of giving. I think so much of, you know, what's so encouraging about philanthropy or all of these different kinds of gestures that people give to the community is what they get in return is often so much greater than what they gave, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a kind of narrow sense. Yeah. Lovely. Well, again, several of these questions you've already touched on. I'm just going to go over them and leave it to the readers if, or the, the listeners to extract what you've already said. But one of the questions we asked you was, what comes to mind for you when you hear the phrase, the art and science of wealth? And your answer here that you wrote down, but you also referenced it is quantitative and qualitative tools used to understand wealth. It's, again, brilliant insights. Um, next one. And, and then, Steffi, I'll let you get to the, the, the one after that. But can you describe the person? you've met with, you've met, I, I'm sorry, that acted wealthy based on your personal definition that wasn't rich, a multimillionaire. 
whatever yeah. the definition of rich is. I can think of a lot of people. I mean, uh, you know, this could be an entire episode. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure all of your guests could think of a lot, but I, I'll just go back to that idea of abundance and generosity of the people that are truly the most generous of spirits. So of course, the first person I think of is my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, she's always, uh, she probably taught me the most about, about generosity and, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she's a very stoic woman and showed me that even even a very stoic person can exhibit generosity later in life i would read marcus aurelius and indeed marcus had his own version of of generosity of spirit too so i think those two things kind of go hand in hand but i think about the intellectual the people that helped me on my intellectual journey uh people you know uh, being in germany as a student was hard I, I had to sit through long lectures that were all in german and then i'd have to write 20 page papers in german and uh it took it uh, i had to do that before i was fluent that was kind of the journey that led me to fluency was having to do that but the mm-hmm. european university system is kind of it's a little more intense uh it's a little bit more throwing students into the deep end and then letting them swim and so i found that the culture of students is much more one where people help each other out and so people that would have no business no need to help me just a foreigner a a stranger in a strange land i was you know so many times uh i would uh i would you know be helped out in my studies and ways and, and would try to return that same kind of generosity. And then, you know, that let, went on to the folks that I worked with for my dissertation, my, my committee. And then, you know, later I just think of the great intellectual mentors in the world, a, a family office that I've been fortunate enough to work with um, who have, you know, never turned down and uh, a question to, to take a call and just have a conversation and to just share wisdom. You know, I think for me, I'm a person who is probably clear by the conversation. I, I like to learn. I like to kind of think about things, and I I, I sort of seek knowledge and wisdom above all else. And and so, uh, the amount of people along my way that are willing to kind of take the time and offer those lessons freely, and just to, as a part of the spirit of we're all trying to improve not only the lives of ourselves but the people that we work with, the people you know, the families that we serve in the context of family offices or the businesses that we're building, the customers, clients, shareholders, and stakeholders alike. Um, certainly part of uh, early conversations I had with Joe, very kind of overlapped a lot with with conversations around this. So those are that's kind of how I think at least about what does it mean to act wealthy or the people that have acted wealthy? It's, it's people that really demonstrate those, that kind of generous spirit. Wow. Well, I think it's fairly obvious why we wanted Seth on here. Um, Steffi, what what would you like to yeah, uh, so cover? Tell us a bit about your experiences with Mark Sharp at TFOA. You have some of the good stuff, some of the, if you've had aha moments, things like that. Well, Mark and I were immediately, and I, um, you know, I hope if his schedule allows, you'll have some time to, to bring him on and tell his own story. I think it's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, Mark and I were immediately kind of very simpatico with our views on, you know, and this is a whole other topic uh, that we could get into a little bit or maybe save for another time, my, uh, some future appearance. There's a lot of, uh, you know, I think we, we both shared a general, the, the use of wealth, so much of wealth management, the industry that's emerged relies on kind of fear-based thinking and getting people scared in order to incite action. And we're both, we we're both very much shared a counter view to that. And uh, I know Joe is, and Steffi, I'm sure we're all 
fellow travelers in that journey. And so, um, you know, very, very quickly, uh, Mark and I shared a lot of kind of intellectual overlap with our view of of families and family offices and, and what it means. And, and, you know, Mark's built a really unique uh, uh, kind of vertical way to serve this network of families where because uh, it's not a MFO or it's not a, a kind of a classically, you know, an RIA or a structure like this, uh, he's able to speak candidly and he's able, you know, he doesn't have to sugarcoat things. So he can speak candidly to families. He can create a network where families can come and, you know, it's a, he has, you know, core value. You know, one thing that everyone in family, you know, families are often pitched things or sold things. And he's created a, a space where that doesn't really happen, where people can come together. He's very protective of that space in a, in a very good way and uh, creates an environment. And, you know, I think the sort of the proof is in the pudding. It's a, it's a unique network in that it has real family engagement, real engagement from principals or executives that gather together to talk about the problems they're facing in candid ways and to try to find solutions or learn from each other. Um, and it's exactly the kind of, you know, it's, it's modeling to me, at least exactly the kinds of, uh, you know, I don't want to say networking is, is a word that gets thrown a lot around a lot, but it's, it's kind of, it's, creating exactly the kind of community experience that I think should be replicated in different ways. Um, and it's very difficult to, because, you know, there's such a, there's so much pressure to find ways to, to uh, capitalize, to create business models out of these things. And so much of what family families need cannot be captured in a traditional business model. Um, and, uh, until you kind of accept that, you, you have a really hard time existing in the space. So, you know, those are there's a number of aha moments along the way. But that's what I think is really special about TFOA. And I think, you know, I would also lump into that something like the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, which isn't family-based. That's trying to – the Ultra High Net Worth Institute is really – yeah, building, you know, people, folks like us that are are kind of thinking through these same issues more from a tactical operational way. Um but again, in a way that's really trying to cut through a lot of the noise mm -hmm. um, to get at, you know, how what are what are the things that actually work and, and how can we implement these in, in kind of practical ways? Yeah. Steve Prestano started that. We'll have to have him come and yeah. Talk yeah. Steve him. is great. And um, they, I mean, they have a great they have a great they've, they've built a great, uh, you know, kind of board and, and their leadership team, I, I think, is really fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. All right. Now I'm going to put you on the clock of 30 second answers or less. Because we're, okay. we're running out of that valuable thing we all talked about called time. <laughs> or at least the attention of our viewers. Let's put it that way. Um, I can't imagine people not wanting to listen to this and listen to it over and over again. This is such great stuff. Uh, two, th two questions. I'm going to bundle into one and let you finish up, Steph. Um, quick tips on philanthropy, cautionary tales. Uh, what's your best advice in 30 seconds? And I know you wrote it down so you can say it. Yeah, I did write this one down. All right. 30 I mean, it's easy. It's easy. You know, narrow your scope, focus, go deep. I think too many people want to try to solve the pro the worlds of the problem. The world is too big and too complex. 
Um, and I think, again, it, it, there's a, I'll just say that there's an interesting relationship that I think the narrower you focus, the more benefit it creates because you're creating real genuine connection. Um, you know, and so practical advice, I would, I always advise people to connect with local organizations. You know, obviously you want to define that space and then find the people in your area or region that are working in that and build those kind of deep, deep connections. But, you know, uh, it's. Philanthropy is similar to writing. Right. The more specific, right. the better. That's it. All right. That's enough. I'm going to summarize by what you wrote. Small is beautiful. Narrow your scope, define your space, and go deep. That's, that is just brilliant. The second one is, uh, what do you think, kind of with folks, this, the rich people, let's not, uh, the wealthy people, as well as rich people, um, what do you think they fear the most? 30 seconds. Uh um, well, I, I put down three things here, three things that came come to mind, but I, I think, you know, trust is the thing that is the most precious resource for any uh, high net worth family, individual family office. Who can you trust? As, as more and more people know your family story, it becomes harder to know who is being genuine with you and who is just trying to get something out of you. And so the fear is that the people that you think you trust are actually not trustworthy. And you know, that's why so many of those core family office people have history that goes before the wealth was generated because, you know, if they knew you at your lowest and at your worst and they stuck through you from all, from all of that. But, you know, other things, it's, it's that future-oriented problem, right? You don't want the things you've created to ruin your kids, your grandkids, you know, that – you know, again, there's a, there has to be a way for us to engage this topic without it turning into that fear-based thing. But I, I do think that is a, a fear there. And then, you know, uh, nobody wants to be made a fool. Nobody wants to seem foolish. And and I think you feel more and more pressure as as society sees you as a successful person, whatever that means. The stakes of just everyday decisions become much higher. Right. As we see, you know, uh, if a president trips, it gets it's on SNL. Right. If you and I trip, nobody cares. Right. And so, you know, that that kind of mentality. And again, that's a that's a way going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, that kind of self. That's where that kind of self-awareness can actually start to hurt you because you become so focused on that. So focused, so risk averse in that very specific sense that you kind of lock yourself in. And, and I think there's fear there as well. That's brilliant. Steph? Healthcare Velocity Center. Tell us quickly about your work there and what you're hoping to accomplish. And then maybe we'll touch on what's next for you after that. Well, uh, the Healthcare Velocity Center was uh, an idea that a number of, I like to think of them as sort of elder statesmen of mm -hmm. the Austin kind of venture healthcare investment community developed over a number of years trying to answer questions. How can we improve the venture ecosystem? How can we improve Austin? And how can we, how can we help, you know, everybody can kind of see the energy that's moving the curve that's kind of moving toward Austin. Not only how can we capture that, but how can we structure that in a way to produce the most beneficial outcomes for the city, for the entrepreneurs that want to come here and live here, um, for the broader community as itself. And given their background in healthcare and a kind of in a unique way in which healthcare and healthcare technology is really focused around questions of care, questions going back to that idea of wealth and wheel and health and what is good, how do we produce abundance, have this idea to take their knowledge and the networks they've built, the legacy 
of all of the years that they've put into uh, their own careers to leverage those networks to create wealth for the city of Austin, for the community, not only the entrepreneurs and the investors and the whole ecosystem, but for you know every kind of shareholder and stakeholder that, that touches this both nationally and internationally. So it's a very exciting project. Um, you know, it's not a, I wouldn't think of it as directly a family office project, but you can see the the overlap, you know, in questions of how do we create a, you know, this is a more, you know, the telos, if we go back to that, the aim or the goal of HVC is aligned in that question of being future oriented, uh, thinking about how do we produce abundance? How do we produce better outcomes? for the, the city of Austin, for entrepreneurs, for the capital ecosystem as it exists. Um, and that's what that's what we're building. And that's a really, it's a fun project to work and to again, learn from these, as I, as I kind of lovingly call them, these kind of elder statesmen and, and other kind of experienced uh, participants and, and board of directors and everything. And, and that's what we're in the process of building. And, and it's a really great time. It's a great time to work in Austin because Austin is going under such tremendous change. Uh, and it's it's very exciting to be a part of that. I'd like to in, in, inject some things on this specifically, and again, both in a spirit of full disclosure, but also um, my sort of view on what he so eloquently described. Uh, these are more than elder statesmen, um, and it's more than just a few mentors and a few people on his board. Um, having studied the world of, of accelerators and venture studios and that whole genre, I do believe this has an opportunity with the leadership and the um, what I call their balance sheet assets, which are these. This it's more than elder statesmen. This is almost a who's who in the world of adult behavior, adult uh, leadership in very large public companies and very large private healthcare companies. To really change multiple things, both what what uh, the vision is or the mission statement as he spoke to, but also the accelerator model or whatever that is, the new label that's going to have to probably be assigned. <laughs> so it's not confused with the old accelerator model because it's coming, and it's really impressive. Uh, the the hundred fifty, Seth. What's the number of your elder state? Yeah, it's it's closer to two hundred. Uh, are that sort of advisory list, core advisor? Yeah, that sort of extensive core advisory network. Yeah, we're about two hundred strong. Yeah, when you think in terms of who they can pick up the phone, who these companies going through their program will have access to, presuming they're listening and following the good advice that will come from these folks and executing, right, that entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. um, the the time and the, and the brain damage to get access to that level of expertise, I'm not sure there's another accelerator in any industry that, that can shorten the time and the distance between building something of, of note and meaning and having access to meaningful human capital resources to help bring it to market, execute feedback loops, all the things that he, the system at large that, that Seth has described so so well. So uh, it is something that what I'm working on is also involved with as well. Um, and so I have a, a personal interest and I got a dog in his fight at the, the Velocity Center as well. But equally as important as Seth and I were talking about, um, this being a possible place for what's next for Seth um, that, that, that manifested. I also see this as just what's next for three, five years, whatever the math turns out to be, because that, that's a big brain, a big personal balance sheet that can play at an even bigger level. And so mm -hmm. I think that that leads to maybe the, the wrap up question is, mm -hmm. what do you see your legacy if you've been able to identify that in any, any material degree you can share with our audience, where are you going to apply 
your collective wisdom and experience and Rolodex that you're going to be adding a lot to in your five, whatever years you are at the HBC. You're going to add, you're going to broaden your reach and, and, and scope in such a way that is going to make you a pretty powerful force to, for good. Where would yeah. you apply it? Well, it's a lofty, uh, it's a lofty question, hard to hard to answer. Look, I think this conversation with the two of you, and and what we got into, as long as I can continue to pursue these kinds of ideas in practical ways, and helping people take all of that sort of knowledge and all the things that we learned from the world and going all the way back and finding ways to apply that in meaningful, practical ways that help create wealth, wheel, mm. health, abundance, all of those things. Um, I know that I'm happy as long as I can do that. And I think you got a kind of a snapshot, at least of how my brain thinks about it, how at least at this moment. Um, but as we talked about, systems are always changing. So, you know, check in with me next year. Maybe it's an entirely different story. That's right. You, your life is a system that is just playing out. It's in the third inning. And uh, yeah, as you described it, that feedback loop is going to just continually Add, add gravitas to your system that that obviously has an intentionality for good in our most profound definition. Uh, Stephanie, any last thoughts? No, it's perfect. Well, yeah, I'm not, this is, I got chills when I, I, and almost every time I talk to Seth, by the way. So I, uh, can we offer up your contact information to our listeners, Seth? Of, of course. Oh, fantastic. Of course. Well, we will on the, um, our our producer Nick. Um, like and subscribe to the show. Smash <laughs> that like button, as the kids say, right? What What do the kids say? Smash the like button. Smash the like yes. Button. <laughs> That's Thank right. That. I could never say that because I ain't a kid. <laughs> Leave a five star review on on iTunes. You know, obviously, look me up. Uh, I'm always happy to uh, connect with folks and. Uh, especially any if if anything that we talked about interested you and, and the listener and these kinds of things i mean i think we're always looking for fellow travelers isn't that right oh. like people that you know we're, we're kind of a self-selecting community people that you have these kinds of experiences you know I, I shared a little bit about mine i know on previous episodes you guys have talked about your backgrounds you mm -hmm. have these experiences you see little slices of the world and you start asking yourself questions um, and you immediately start to recognize people that are asking similar questions. And um, I think that's why I think it's so great that, that you guys are doing the show to help to help create that community. And, and, and I think capture it, memorialize it. I, I call it, I'm kind of nerdish. It's more signal, less noise, because there's so much noise on all the topics you've touched on for all the reasons we don't need to belabor. So, um, well, in a spirit of, again, true wrap up, we do appreciate those that were able to make it through this far. And if you didn't, you're nuts. Go back and listen <laughs> to it again and finish up because it was good. Um, this was a this was profound, Seth. I can't thank you enough. I cherish our friendship. I obviously love our, that we also have, after the friendship, a professional relationship. Um, and uh, we just appreciate the folks that find this content meaningful because I, I love that. Fellow travelers, we're going to use your words. And we will Please cite do. you. We will cite you. <laughs> <laughs> that one's public domain, I think, but thank you. <laughs> I know. In our world, it's because of Seth. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> thank you all for listening again. Thank you for watching and listening to the Art and Science of Wealth podcast, Having an Impact, Leaving a Legacy. Edited and produced by Nicholas Peck.